Let's do it. All right, well, good morning, everybody. Let's find our places. We are in the final week of this series we have been studying for a couple of months. And it has really been a great time for me, and I know a lot of people have enjoyed it. They've come and shared the things they've learned and how it's been encouraging. I hope it's been encouraging for you if you've been with us for the duration. If you happen to be with us just today for the first time, well, this is the last of eight messages, actually, but yet the Scripture will stand on its own two feet where we're at, and so we're really glad that you're here as well. So what we have been doing is studying the book of Revelation, chapters 1, 2, and 3, and specifically in chapters 2 and 3, there are letters written to seven churches, and we have seen each of the seven churches that historically they are literal churches in cities in an area called Asia Minor. We would understand that as modern-day Turkey today. And literally, these were churches that had these situations of their life going on, and the Lord addresses these situations to these churches. That would be the historical application. There's always a very practical, inspirational application that any church at any time may take on the characteristics of any one of those seven churches, and therefore, the Lord has a word for that church. The Lord has counsel and advice and warnings and, and whatnot for that church. And so, depending on where you find yourself in life and and how you might see what's going on. You can make an application based on any one of those seven churches as you may see it apply to your life. But what we have really been emphasizing for the bulk of our study is, is what would be the doctrinal application, the specific teaching. And the specific teaching is such that God has not left the last 2,000 years of history without scriptural witness. Uh, John wrote this letter of Revelation literally at about 90 A.D. And we're about 1,900, 2,000 years after that now. And it's not that we are without Revelation. Chapters 2 and 3 literally break down those seven churches such that we can follow seven periods of church history from the time of the apostles until the rapture of the church. And so what we've done every week is take one church per week. Last week, we actually we had two weeks on Philadelphia. And, and we looked at each church situation and the comparative historical events. And it has just been amazing to see the Scriptures open up, amen, and to just see how the things God described to literal churches in Asia Minor back then actually played out throughout history. So we call it the prophecy of history, because when it was penned, it was prophecy. But for us now, we're at the tail end of it. We're, we're in the very last church. Today is going to be the last message of all of the seven churches. We're in the church of Laodicea. And so Revelation 3.14 is where we're going to start in a second. If you don't have your Bibles open, you can go to Revelation 3.14. And it really it has been, it's been quite a journey. Uh, but since we're at the end, we look back on it and we can see it all as history. So... Shakespeare wrote in Romeo and Juliet, you know, that parting is such sweet sorrow. And, you know, we're going to be soon parting this world. And I don't know if for you, as you think about our departure from this world, if that's sweet or if that's sorrowful. The, the quote from Romeo and Juliet goes on to say that I should say goodnight till it be morrow. You know, we'll be departing this world soon enough, Laodicea. And yet, we'll get to come back and meet it again in a time called the millennium. 
Now that's going to be sweet, right? That's going to be the one we're really, we're really looking for. So as we end our series, as we end our whole series on church history, coming through and ending with the time of Laodicea, I really want to take the time and really apply just a very practical, encourage, hopefully encouraging, but personal for sure, appeal to obedience and action. Uh, we've done a lot of facts and figures and names and dates and events of history. But today, y'all, I just think I'm going to preach. Because Laodicea is us. It's who we are. It's the time in which we live. And these words are written to us. A direct message for us to get it. It's the final church before the rapture. So I would like for you all to please listen carefully to God's final testimony of his church just before he takes us out. You ready? You follow along. I'm going to start in Revelation 3:14 to the end of the chapter. And unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would thou wert cold or hot. So then, because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. Because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing, and knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire that thou mayest be rich, and white raiment that thou mayest be clothed, and that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear, and anoint thine eyes with eye salve that thou mayest see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and will sup with him and he with me. To him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame and am set down with my father in his throne. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. And Heavenly Father, may we have ears to hear what the Spirit wants to say to us today. Lord Jesus, it is embarrassing to be a part of a time of history where your testimony of your church is so brutally honest and negative. Yet, Lord Jesus, we understand there are overcomers. Lord, may we be those overcomers. May we be those that qualify to hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant. May your spirit have free reign in our hearts now as we look deeper into your word. Be our teacher, Lord Jesus. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Well, we have a standard outline we've been following. We're going to continue to follow it. Point number one, the church is called. The name of the church has a specific meaning. The name of the church is Laodicea. If you were to, to just translate what does that name Laodicea literally mean, it means civil rights. That's what it means. Civil rights. 
literally the rights of the people. And so each of the churches I've given a subtitle, and this church I'm going to call the protesting church. The protesting church. I thought about calling it the poor church, uh, because truly it is poor. And as we saw, they think they're rich, but God says you're poor. Uh, We're going to talk about that in a little bit. But when you think of civil rights, which is literally what the name means, you think about people protesting, don't you? You think about people protesting. Because this is a time in history when everyone, and I mean everyone, even church people, is fighting, protesting for my rights, man. I've got rights. How dare you? My rights. I'm fighting for, everybody's got rights now, right? Everybody's got rights. We got women's rights. We got children's rights. We got animal rights. We got gay rights. I mean, we got to save the baby seals and we got to save the spotted owls, right? And it seems like the only group that doesn't always seem to get their rights are male, white, Anglo-Saxon Protestants. I don't know why that is. Everybody's got their rights. Uh, Vegans. No food with a face. I mean, you can't do that. It's inhumane to kill animals. I mean, it hurts them. Although we tolerate the slaughtering of unborn babies. Uh, We have to lower our carbon footprint. I mean, we have to save the planet. But we don't mind if all the people on it go straight to hell. That's Laodicea. That's the time in which we live. Listen, don't misunderstand me. I understand that there actually are genuine human rights violations. Uh, Those need to be dealt with. Don't don't hear what I'm not saying. There are times when somebody needs to step in and protect those who can't protect themselves. But haven't you kind of noticed we've kind of gone crazy with this thing? I mean, accept it. This is the general testimony of the day in which we live. It is. So I have a question for you. What about God's rights? What about God's rights? I mean, when's the last time we've considered that? And so you might say, well, I don't know what you're talking about, Jeff. I mean, God is sovereign. God is all-powerful. God gets whatever he wants. Oh, really? Um, Does God not have the rights to your life? Uh, I think I read somewhere that he paid for that. I mean, isn't that exactly what Paul said to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verses 19 and 20, where Paul literally to the churches, he's amazed that they don't get it. And he says, what? Know ye not, don't you even get it? That your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which ye have of God. And listen, listen, ye are not your own. For ye are bought with a price. Therefore, because that's true, because it's a fact, you have been bought with a price and your life is no longer your own. You don't have the right to make your own decisions, Laodicea. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. You want to talk about rights? Your life, Christian, rightly, belongs to God. You made a deal. 
You traded lives. You gave him your poor, wretched, miserable, blind, and naked life and got his perfect, pure, holy, eternal, just, perfect life. It's the greatest deal you've ever made if you've made it. And if you've yet to make it, make it today before it's too late. He offers to you his sinless, perfect, eternal life. And you are smart enough to say, thank you, I want that. But in so saying, thank you, I want that, if the transaction actually took place, that means that you laid your life willingly at his feet and said, Lord Jesus, I surrender to you my entire life so that I can receive the gift of your holy eternal life. You made that deal. How dare you go back on that deal? What about God's rights? Well, he goes on and emphasizes that. Have you noticed this is a theme throughout the New Testament? I mean, I don't know how you read the Bible. You may want to skip over these verses. They may not be your favorites. 2 Corinthians 5.15 And that he, Jesus, died for all, that they which live, they who have received him and now have eternal life, should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. Unto whom are we living? That's why he says in Galatians 2.20, I am crucified with Christ. But then he says, wait a minute, I, I didn't die. Nevertheless, I live. Oh, wait a minute, it's not really me. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, post-salvation, pre-rapture. That's where we're at, right? The life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's why he writes to the Romans in chapter 12, I beseech you therefore, brethren, the beseeching, he's literally begging and pleading with the church in Rome, by the mercies of God that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is outstanding service. No. It's just your reasonable. So why is it just reasonable that you present everything about your life, your bodies, friends, not your lives, your bodies. That means your eyes. What are you looking at? That means your tongue. What exactly do you talk about? Maybe your ears. What kinds of things do you listen to? I mean, your hands, your feet. What kind of work do you do? What kinds of places do you go? Present your bodies a living sacrifice. Why? Because you are bought with a price. Your life is not your own. God has the right to call the shot. He left his physical body. He, he removed it from this planet, and we are the body of Christ. He is the head. He wants to work through us. He has the right to do that. And we don't have the right to say no. We don't. Do you afford God his right to your life, to your body, to your decisions? You know, we're all about rights in Laodicea, if they're ours. <laughs> we're not all about them when they're God's. That's because, by the way, we still have a free will. 
I don't care what the Calvinists say. Hypocrisy, y'all, is rampant. There is no short. Have you noticed? There's no shortage of hypocrisy out there. You say, hey, man, you can't talk to me that way. That's emotional abuse. You're violating my right to have an enjoyable church experience. <laughs> oh, yeah, I forgot. It's Laodicea. <laughs> That's the general condition of the church. That's what we're dealing with today. So the time frame runs from about 1900 A.D. to the rapture of the church. You may put in parentheses, any day now. And we marked it about 1900 A.D. because 1900 A.D. is about the time that we have the beginning of what we call Bible apostasy. We dealt with this last week. You can go back and listen if you want more detail. But in 1881, a couple of guys come up whose names are Westcott and Horde, and, and they dig up a couple of manuscripts, and one is called Vaticanus and one is Sinaiticus, and they put together a new Greek text of the New Testament, and it's said to be made with the oldest and best manuscripts. You may have a Bible with footnotes, and it may show readings, and it'll say, the oldest and best manuscripts say, and they're referring to this Sinaiticus and Vaticanus, and they're Alexandrian North African manuscripts that ultimately came up through the Roman Catholic Church. The first other English Bible that, that even attempted to offer something other than the roaring lion of the English Reformation, the King James Bible of the 17th century, was the Revised Version, which came out in 1885, and then the American Standard Version in 1901. And so just in the 20th century, we have well over 200 English Bible versions that have all been translated from Vaticanus, Sinaiticus, Westcott, and Hort, etc., etc., etc. Take the class on manuscript evidence if you want to learn more. I have some slides to show you all the different Bibles that have been translated since 1900. Oh, that's nothing. Go on, next one. Another slide. Uh, I don't think we're done. Another one. Oh, that was the third one. There was three slides worth of that, y'all. Those are the Bibles that have been coming off the presses, coming off the presses and coming up just in our century. And isn't it interesting? In our century, the time of Laodicea, oh yeah, the testimony of the church is not that great. It's not that great. So, you know, it's kind of funny. I wonder about this sometimes. So I have another question for you to consider. Is the emphasis on counterfeit Bibles in the 20th century causal or coincidental to the Laodicean church phenomenon? Causal is the fact that there are all these Bibles that change what God said. The cause of our apostate situation or would you say that well, it's just, they're not related to one another in, in any way. That's just coincidental. They, they coincide in history. I think you need to consider that. Is it really just coincidental that when we have decided that we're going to print Bible after Bible after Bible after Bible based on what is referred to in these scholarly circles as the critical text the Westcott and Hort is called the critical text of manuscripts. 
And when exactly in the Bible did we read, or where in the Bible did we read, that God ever gave us permission to criticize the Bible? And when man rises so high in his own mind as to look down and criticize the very words of God, how do you think God reacts to that church? How do you think God's testimony of that church would be? You think it's coincidence that life in general, spiritually speaking, has declined and hit the skids? In the Old Testament, they would write a word across the door, Ichabod. (laughs) The glory has departed. The glory has departed. Well, listen, look back at your notes. You have to understand Laodicea if you're going to effectively minister today. And this is really what I want you to get. You have to, it's not without hope, y'all. We can, we can become overcomers. We're getting there. But you have to understand Laodicea. If you're going to be an effective minister in this time in which we live, we can't help when we were born. We're here, right? You have to understand that the main harvest of souls is over. It's over. You need to understand that there will be no more great sweeping revivals. You need to understand that. You need to understand that this is not the time of God's greatest working, not according to the Bible. That's the story that religious charlatans will pose in front of you so that they can steal your money. It's not the time of God's greatest workings. It's not the time of the great revivals. Billy Graham is probably the last great revivalist that will ever, this planet will ever see before the rapture of the church. And some people think even his doctrines are pretty questionable. But God used them. God used them. This is not the time of the greatest missionary movement. You know what this is the time of? This is the time of the gleanings. Anybody who plants knows that there's some first fruits that pop out early, and then there's the main harvest, whatever the season of harvest is for the crop that you've planted. Most of the fruit comes in a certain period of time, which would be considered the harvest. But there's always a few late stragglers. There's always some gleanings of fruit that pop out late in the season. And that plant is going to give you one or two or three or four last tomatoes, right, before the snow falls and the winter comes and all the plants die, right? That's Laodicea. We are in the time of the gleanings. And you know what our job is, church? Go get the gleanings. That's our job. Go get the gleanings. That's who Laodicea is. Number two, Jesus Christ is characterized. Now, Jesus Christ in each case introduces himself, and he introduces himself in a unique way to each church because he introduces himself in direct opposition to the spirit of the age. Therefore, The way Jesus Christ introduces himself in opposition to the spirit of the age becomes the key to understanding how we can become overcomers in our age. You want to be an overcomer, right? So we need to live our lives in accordance with the way Jesus Christ introduces himself. And how does he introduce himself first? He says, thus saith, check it out, the amen. The amen. Now you know what? Amen happens to be the last word in all of the Bible. Have you ever noticed that? Revelation twenty two twenty one 21 ends with amen. Jesus is the omega. He is the end. 
He is the last word. And you know what amen really does? It is affirming truth. The word amen literally means, so be it. May it be so. Amen. I agree. I affirm the truth that was spoken. Do you know what your last words should be? Always agreeing with whatever God says. That's what your last words should be, right? And by the way, it is a fact that after the rapture of the church and after the judgment seat of Christ and after the great white throne at the end of the millennium, the Bible says in Philippians 2, 11 and 12 that every single creature will bow before God and confess that God is right. You know what that is? That's amen. amen. Even the devil will say amen to God. Even the devil. You know what Jesus Christ is saying here? John 14, 6, I am the truth. John chapter 1, verses 1 and 14, I am the word of God. You know what he says in John 17, 17, my word is truth. And in Revelation 3, he says, I am the amen. amen. You put that together, I, Jesus Christ, I am the truth, I am the word, the Bible is the word, and I affirm the word. That's what Jesus Christ is saying. You know what he's saying to you? You tracking? You know what he's saying to you? Well, listen, if you're a Christian, Jesus Christ lives inside of you, right? If you gave him full control of your tongue, would you find yourself saying amen when his word is declared? Thank God for Maksud. <laughs> and brothers like him. Listen, y'all, seriously. This is not a cultural thing. This is not a cultural thing. I mean, can I say kindly? Get over yourselves. Get over yourselves, man. And let the Holy Spirit of God that lives inside of you and that wrote this word that introduces Jesus Christ among all those other things as the amen work through you so that when that spirit hears his word in you, there's a natural reaction to affirm his word. You say, well, I'm just quiet. Okay, well, you work it out any way you want. I mean, the Spirit's rolling now. We'll go right on to letter B, faithful and true witness. Well, you know that a witness tells others what he's seen and what he's experienced. Have you experienced anything with Jesus Christ? A witness tells that, right? We are to be witnesses of Jesus Christ and of our salvation. We call that evangelism. That's what we call it. So a faithful and true witness, you know what that is? That's speaking truth. Amen is affirming truth, but this is speaking truth. Do you witness to others about Jesus Christ? Do you witness to others about salvation? People need to know, right? Ephesians 4.15 says that we are to be speaking the truth in love. But notice what it continues to say, that we may grow up into him in all things, which is the head, even Christ. Do you realize that if we're not speaking truth to others, we're probably not growing? 
See how God's got that thing connected? That's amazing, isn't it? It's a part of your growth. Or do you just remain silent because you think, man, I don't want to offend them. I mean, they have their right to their opinion. Oh, yeah, rights. I forgot about that. It's the faithful and true witness. So faithful is do it regularly. What is a faithful witness? It's somebody who witnesses all the time, right? Listen, in Eastern Europe, under communism, they had secret believers because of the fear of the harsh persecution against Christians. In Laodicea, you know what we have? We have secret unbelievers who are hiding out in churches pretending to be Christians. That's what we have. Faithful witness. Think about that for a while. You know what Laodicea and church planning is all about? I'm I'm talking broadly across the spectrum. Laodicea and church planting has little, if any, to do with evangelizing the lost. You know what the vast majority of Laodicea and church planting is all about? Some carnal Christians in a group of an existing church got their panties in a wad and they got all mad. Can I just say that? I just said that. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) And they go two miles down the street with all their friends and try and recruit everybody they can out of your church and hang a new sign on a building somewhere and start themselves a church. Nobody's winning lost people. They're fishing in your fishbowl, man. That's Laodicea. Not faithful witnesses. They're sheep thieves. You want to be an overcomer? Be a faithful witness for the Lord, amen? It says a true witness. So don't just do it regularly, do it accurately. Listen, man, there's a lot of guys out there talking, (laughs) right? If you're going to open your mouth, can I say, at least make sure you know what in the world you're talking about? You know that in Laodicea, the the limitless list of false doctrines that are propagated in the cults that have so much traction, everybody has their opinion. Who cares about your opinion? Who cares about mine? We should only care about one opinion. It's the only opinion that matters. You have to be a true witness. So what is he saying? I am the faithful and true witness. You want to be an overcomer? Be a faithful, regular witness of Jesus Christ being an evangelist. But you have to be a true witness, which means you have to be a Bible student. That means you got to get involved in discipleship. That means you need to grow. That means you need to learn what it says so that you can say it accurately. That's what he's saying. He's not done. He's still introducing himself. The beginning of the creation of God. So he's the beginning. He was the end, right? Now he's the Alpha and the Omega. That's what Revelations 1 said, right? How does the Bible begin? Well, it begins in the beginning. In the beginning, God created. Jesus is the beginning of the creation of God. That's what it says. He's not a created small G God like the Jehovah's Witness Bible says he is. 
the beginning of the creation of God is all about accepting truth. It's all about accepting it, right? We affirm it, we speak it, and now we need to just accept it. He said it, I accept it. But during Laodicea, science is exalted over Scripture. And the origin of life, is it natural or is it supernatural, right? That's a 20th century issue. Evolution is taught as fact. There's no creation by God. Uh, we spend billions of dollars. We, we build this thing called the Hubble Telescope, and we launch it into outer space. You know why they built that thing? You know what they're out there looking for, don't you? They're looking for evidence to try and prove the Big Bang. That's what they're trying to do. You ever heard of the Large Hedron uh, accelerator collider in CERN Switzerland that's something to look up you know why they developed that thing they developed it to try and see if they could replicate explosions like the Big Bang uh, they can't <laughs> because God created it and you're just not willing to accept it and you'll spend all your time and talent and energy and money because you refuse to accept that there is a righteous holy creator God of this universe that will call your sorry life into account one day if you don't repent and ask him to forgive you of your sins. That's the real story, the beginning of the creation of God. So in your 400-year-old English Bible, and only in your 400-year-old English Bible, 1 Timothy 6, 20 and 21 says, O Timothy, keep that which is committed to thy trust, avoiding profane and vain babblings, and here it is, Oppositions of science falsely so-called. Because science will try and oppose you. True science never opposes the truth of God because God created it all, every molecule. But no other Bible is going to use that term, oppositions of science. They'll say, oh, falsely called knowledge and things like that. Isn't that interesting? So Jesus Christ started it all, and Jesus Christ finishes it all, and He's the living Word of God. He's the first and the last Word on everything. And in the meantime, what are we supposed to do? Well, just go tell people about it, y'all. Go tell them about it. Because the church's condition, number three, is not wonderful. Laodicea receives no praise, only rebuke. It's sad, really. Like I said before, it's a, it's a poor church. And in a couple of specific ways, first off, letter A, it's, there's a poor representation. This church has a poor representation. We are the body of Christ. We are to be the, the earthly manifestation of the life of Jesus Christ. And we're not doing a very good job. We're not hot. We're not cold. We're just in the middle somewhere. Just lukewarm. This is a church that, because they're lukewarm, they won't go to either extreme. They won't be hot. They won't be cold. They won't take a stand. They won't take a stand on anything. Not for God, anyway. Oh, remember, we're the protesting church. We take stands all the time. For my rights, my issues, my benefit, my pleasure, we take stands all the time for that kind of thing. We don't take stands for God, His Word, doctrine, holiness, evangelism, 
church building. We don't take stands for those kind of things. I mean, everybody's got their opinions, right? It might affect. Listen, if we did stuff like that, if we took stands like that, well, we're not winning a lot of friends. <laughs> I mean, I'm worried about what somebody might think of me if I start talking like that. Well, you know, that's really the problem. And John 14, I mean, excuse me, John chapter 12, verse 43. That was the very problem Jesus dealt with with these chief priests and leaders. He says that they love the praise of men more than the praise of God. And that's why Laodiceans won't open their mouth. That's why Laodiceans won't do what God said. That's why Laodiceans are lukewarm. Because if I take a stand on something, somebody won't like it. It's going to cause trouble for me. So I'm just going to stay in the middle of the road. A bunch of fence riders, wishy-washy, not hot, not cold. You know what this crowd does? The crowd tolerates everything. But we're proud of it. We think that's, all, we think that's the greatest manifestation of love. I'm just going to tolerate every kind of thing that exists. You know what a world that tolerates everything won't tolerate? A bold, outspoken, public Bible believer. That's who they won't tolerate. That's who they can't tolerate. Well, I mean, you have to consider their feelings. I mean, they have a point, you know. I mean, if you think about it that way. You know what being lukewarm is, really? This idea of just kind of in the middle. Isn't it just the opposite of being the amen? Isn't being the amen, taking a stand on what God says, and being lukewarm is like, hey, just kind of whatever you think, I mean... I mean, how do you think that makes God feel? Oh, well, you don't actually have to think about it at all, do you? It makes him sick. It makes him want to vomit. It makes him sick to his stomach to think, my children, all that I have done for you, all that I have given to you, all of the benefits that you have, and in just a second, we'll talk about the wealth, the enormous, opulent wealth that we have at our fingertips. And you won't even take a stand. You won't be hot on fire for me. You won't, look, you could say that hot, I don't actually think this is what it means, but you could say that hot is on fire for the Lord and cold is so out, you're out. Even, even if you said that, cold is still better. Why? Because cold at least gets you in the point where you're so far out in the wilderness that God can whip your backside and get you back. <laughs> but when you're in the middle, you just kind of, I just think I'm okay, you know, whatever. And You're like these kids that grew up in church and Christian homes and they know all the lingo, but they don't know Jesus. They get vaccinated with just enough that they're immune to the real disease of Christianity. That's what we got going on. Poor representation makes God sick. Well, then there's poor judgment. Poor judgment. Because the church says, they, God quotes them. Because you say that you're rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing, you don't even realize your real condition, Right? Wretched and miserable and poor and blind and man. So you're judging it this way 
and I'm judging it this way, and you're judging it wrong. <laughs> because Laodiceans only judge outwardly. We have a hard time judging inwardly. Outwardly, physically. By the way, can I just say this at least? Their outward judgment of themselves and their own condition by being rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing, it's not inaccurate. It's not an inaccurate judgment. It's just the wrong judgment. It's an accurate outward judgment. I mean, this is the church that got bank. <laughs> this church has money. This church has wealth. This church has size. This church has resources, right? This is the time in history of the mega church. And the mega church, generally speaking, is built on a strategy of ministry that says, don't take a hard stand. That's the strategy. Lots of money, lots of size, lots of things, outwardly amazing. You have to ask yourself, and this is a general statement, I'm not specifically talking about anyone, because there are always exceptions to a rule. Generally speaking, a church of that kind, does it really please the Lord? Consider that. Does it really please the Lord? I mean, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 18 says, While we look not on the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen, they're temporal. But the things which are not seen, they're eternal. So God wants us to see things inwardly, spiritually. Inwardly and spiritually, Laodicea's got some serious issues. Some serious, serious issues. That's how God sees us. How, how y'all feeling about yourself right about now? I mean, this positive self-image is kind of going down. Listen. If I called you that, if I called you what God just called you, I mean, you'd be calling your lawyers and suing me, man. Because, I mean, after all, you've got your rights. Right? But, I, hey, for the record, I didn't call you that. God called us all that, right? I mean, that's disgusting. So, I think that we need to just kind of take a bath. Let's refresh our souls. Let's remind ourselves, Right? of what God says about how we ought to do this thing, right? So very clearly in John 7, 27, Jesus says, Judge not according to the appearance, but judge righteous judgment. Righteous judgment is only going to come by the word of God. It's the only chance we have at righteous judgment. 1 Samuel 16, verse 7, The Lord said unto Samuel, Look not on his countenance, speaking of the young David, nor on the height of his stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord seeth not as a man, as actually talking about Saul, and then ultimately about David, I'm sorry. Lord seeth not as man seeth, here it is, for man looketh on the outward appearance, but the Lord looketh on the heart. So when all we do is judge the outward appearance, we're doing what man does, which is substandard, 
when we can get beyond the outer facade and see the inward person, spiritually speaking, well, now we're beginning to see things the way God sees them. We're judging righteous judgment now. So Paul reminds the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 2.14, but the natural man, the unsaved man, receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him, neither can he know them. Why? Because they are spiritually discerned. But he that is spiritual, in other words, he that knows the Lord, has the Spirit of God living in him, right, judgeth all things, yet he himself is judged of no man. For who hath known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. And by the way, you have it in a written form. And you can carry it around with you wherever you go. This literally is the very mind of Christ. Owning a copy on your shelf is not enough. It's a good start. Reading it, believing it, meditating on it, obeying it. Now we're talking, right? When you do that, you put yourself in a situation where you can judge all things. And you can judge all things righteously. Because at the end of the day, it's not you judging. It's the Lord judging. I was young and I was growing up in my church in Alabama. And I remember before the service started, I was sitting right in this area, about three rows back is where I used to always sit. And before the service started, there was uh, a young guy and his mom sitting in front of me. And one of the guy's buddies was acting foolish, running around in front of the church before the service started. And the little kid said something derogatory about the other kid talking about how foolish he was. And uh, the mom's trying to help her son, you know, and she said, now Johnny, or whatever his name was, she said, you can't, you can't be labeling people like that. And the kid, I mean, wisdom of the Lord just dripping from this child's lips. Mom, I'm not labeling him. He's labeled himself. I'm just reading the label. <laughs> True story. I quick got my pen out. Good <laughs> thinking. There's good news, y'all. We can fix this. We really can. Jesus gives us counsel where he says, buy of me. We're going to have to buy some things from Jesus. Y'all get your checkbooks ready. Oh, by the way, yeah, oh, never mind. We're the rich church. Um, your money won't help you with these things, by the way. You can have all the money in the world. Your money's not going to help you buy. Oh, it will cost you something, y'all. But your cash ain't helping. James 5. Go to now, you rich men. Weep and howl for your miseries that shall come upon you. Your riches are corrupted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver is cankered. And the rest of them shall be a witness against you and shall eat your flesh as it were fire. You have heaped treasure together for the last days. So he wants us to buy of him certain things. The first one, gold in the fire. That's your faith. Gold in the fire is your faith. It fixes the problem of being poor. 1 Peter 1, 7, that the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto the praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. Laodicea, your faith is going to be tested by a trial of fire the question is will you believe god's word even when it's not convenient 
even when all your best friends bail and beg you to go with them? Are you going to believe God's word? Then he says, buy of me white raiment. White raiment is your righteousness. It fixes the problem of naked. So in Revelation 16, he says, Behold, I come as a thief. Blessed is he that watcheth and keepeth his garments, lest he walk naked, and they see his shame. Because in the Bible, nakedness and shame go together, as they should. Revelation 19, 8. And to her, the church, was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, for the fine linen is the righteousness of saints. White raiment is not Christ's righteousness, it's your righteousness. So Paul writes to the Corinthian church, 2 Corinthians 5, For we know that if our earthly house of this tabernacle were dissolved, we have a building of God and house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed upon, talking about the, the eternal state, right? With our house which is from heaven. If so be that being clothed, we shall not be found naked. For we that are in this tabernacle do groan, being burdened, not for that we would be unclothed, but clothed upon, that mortality might be swallowed up of life. Can you imagine what the millennium is going to be for Laodicean believers who refused to buy from Jesus white raiment, I'll let your mind just kind of work on that for a while. This is paying, sacrificing life choices to preserve righteousness in your life. The last thing is ISAB, and ISAB is your ministry. This fixes the problem about being blind. Mark chapter 8, verse 22 to 25. This is the story of Jesus Christ, and the man was blind, and he spits on his eyes, and he touches him, and he says, what do you see? And he looks up, and he says, I see men as trees walking. And then he touches him again. And then he says, now what do you see? And he says, I see every man clearly. This is ministry. It's the difference between, you know what we need, y'all? Sometimes we need a second touch from Jesus Christ. Instead of just seeing people out there, I can't see the forest for the trees. People are just like trees. They're just a big old forest full of them out there. We need to get God's vision so that we can see every man clearly which leads to ministering to each and every individual who has the right, if they ever had a right, to hear the gospel. They have the right to hear the gospel, and it's our job to bring it to them. You say, wow, that's kind of harsh. Nothing good to say about us, really? Well, I mean, what would you expect Jesus' response to be when Jesus is locked out of the church, man? <laughs> He's locked out of the church in verse 20. I want you to notice that it's called the church of the Laodiceans. It's the only church that's written that way. To the church of the Laodiceans. You know what it's not called? It's not the church of Jesus Christ in Laodicea. It's the church of the Laodiceans. It's their church. Hey, this is our church, man. We do things our way in here, right? Nobody's going to mess that up, not even Jesus. So you know what? The church isn't changing. But I want you to keep some things in mind. God's rebuke shows his love. Please understand that. Hey, kids, listen up. Seriously. Your parents 
when the time comes, rare as it may be, that they need to discipline you, I promise you, I promise you they are doing it because they love you. I know you're thinking it ain't that way. They love you. And when they do it, they're doing it to love you and not just this particular group, this particular, I mean, we could go on around the church, right? Your parents invoke discipline in your life because they love you so much. They want to make sure you grow up right. They care. And, oh, by the way, they want to prepare you for the day that when you are dealing one-on-one individually just with God alone, you already know now this is how God works. This is how my parents, my parents wouldn't put up with it. Certainly God won't put up with it. So, parents, if we don't do our diligence and raise and discipline our children properly, they will grow up with a very skewed sense of who God is. You entitle your children when they're young, and you never correct them when they're wrong. And they grow up, and they will never listen to God's correction. They'll never do it. But here's some good news in the midst of this God's rebuke thing. It shows his love. If God is rebuking you, that means you're his kids. You're in the family. Listen, when my kids acted up when they were little, I took care of it. When my neighbor's kids acted up, I wished he took care of it. (laughs) But I didn't go take care of it. They weren't my kids. They're somebody else's kids. And that's the way the Lord is. So in Hebrews 12 and verse 5, And ye have forgotten the exhortation which, which speaketh unto you as unto children. My son, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son, every single one, you're not alone, whom he receiveth. If ye endure chastening, God deal with you as with sons. For what son is he whom the Father chasteneth not? There is none. But if ye be without chastisement... Here's the kicker, right? Where of all are partakers, well, then are you bastards and not sons. If you can get away with living like the devil over and over and over and God never takes you to the woodshed, you're probably not actually his child. Well, let the devil discipline him. ain't mine. So the answer is verse 19, repent. Change your mind. Change your ways. Listen, man. I get up here, I study all week long, I pour my guts out to you guys, I beg people to respond and turn their life over the Lord and obey the scriptures and love Jesus passionately, and I do this, and I go home on Sunday afternoons literally exhausted. And many, many, many people just get up and walk out like, whatever. That bothers me. That hurts my feelings. I know that that happens. But I also understand that this is Laodicea. So why do I keep doing it week after week after week when a significant percentage of people are like, yeah, whatever, no thanks, not interested? Because some people do listen. Some of you do get it. 
Some of you actually are overcomers. Some of you actually want to do what's right. And I know my job. My job in Laodicea is to get the gleanings. That's what it's all about. So let's celebrate and we'll be done. The church's celebration to him that overcometh. Each of the seven churches, right, gets a particular reward to the overcomers. And each reward to each church period is different from the other churches. So in Ephesus, the overcomers get to eat of the tree of life. And in Smyrna, they are not hurt of the second death. And in Pergamos, they get to eat of hidden manna. And they get a white stone with a new name written. And in Thyatira, they get power over the nations. And they get the morning star. And in Sardis, they get their clothes with white raiment. And they will not have their name blotted out of the book of life. And in Philadelphia, there are pillars in the temple with a new name written on them. And while I am sure, beyond my ability to even comprehend, that those rewards are just awesome, did you check out the one that we get in Laodicea? Sit down on the throne with Jesus Christ. Let that sink in. Now, maybe it's my bias because it's the time in which I live. Maybe it's because of the particular pressures that we have to fight every day of our lives. I don't know. It is my personal opinion. You can have your opinion that that's just the coolest reward of all. I mean, if I got to pick, if I was allowed, <laughs> I'm picking that one. I mean, can you imagine in the millennium, you're walking into the temple in Jerusalem and those pillars, man, holding the roof up, right? We're talking Martin Luther, right? I mean, we're talking the guys who are the pillars of the, we're talking, right, William Carey, the father of modern missions. And you get to say, man, thank you guys for what you did. I, I got to go in and sit down. Do y'all think like that when you read the Bible? Yeah. To the worst church? They get that? Well, maybe. Because the greatest reward is given to the overcomers of the hardest time. Remember, it's the hour of temptation. And in the hour of temptation, the Laodicean church period, People who were once faithful ever more frequently are dropping like flies. They're dropping like flies. So you go and you read a book by John Piper and all of a sudden you're a Calvinist. Or you go and you read a book by James White and all of a sudden you're going to dump the KJV. I mean, how about just reading God's book? How about that? How about just having the courage to live what it says, regardless of your peer pressure from your Laodicean besties that want to compromise and run around and have their fun? How about you take a stand for what God says because He says it in the areas where He says it? And you just do that. How about you try that? Never, in my humble opinion, based on the revelation 
of the seven churches. Never must there have been a more difficult period of history for a person to stand out as a faithful overcomer against the spirit of the age where everyone around us, I'm talking about so-called Christians, really don't care. And you're so distracted with the supercomputer that's in your front pocket, you just can't seem to get around to being the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. You can't seem to find time for that stuff. And you fill your life with fun and activities and toys and recreation and more activities and more work to make more money to buy more toys and before you know it you're old and your body's falling apart and there's not much time left and you never really got around to doing the things you told the Lord you would get around to doing someday and you slip off into eternity wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked well 2 Thessalonians 2 we're not even going to read it tells us that in the last days, right at the end, there's going to be a falling away. And that's what Laodicea is. That's what it is. But you don't have to do that, right? You don't have to do that. How do you get to apply this to your life? Well, take the counsel that he says. He says, behold, I stand at the door and knock, right? If any man, any man, you may be in the midst of a Laodicean church. If you, Christian, will hear his voice and open the door. He says, I will come into you and I will sup with you and you with me. Jesus is locked out of the church in general. But Jesus is saying, hey, and I'm just asking, can, hey Christian, can you hear the knock? What are you going to do about that? Can you hear the knock? If you, individual, We'll say, I, I, I want to I have that sweet, personal, individual fellowship with Jesus Christ. Everybody knows, Baptist churches, we know that fellowship means food. Food means fellowship. I will come and sup with him. Literally, that's what he means, personal fellowship with Jesus Christ. There's a lot of dead churches. There's a lot of dead Christians. There's a lot of problems going on. Jesus Christ desperately wants to have communion. The Lord's Supper, communion, fellowship, togetherness. Grab a bite to eat, sit down, hang out, share life with Jesus. Do you want that for your life? Open the door, man. Let him in. Oh, by the way, the door's locked. You open the door, you invite him in. When you invite him in, you know what he's going to want to do? He's going to want to look into every room in your house still want to invite them in you know why people put locks on their doors don't you they put locks on their doors to keep people out and in this case why would we lock jesus out unless maybe we're ashamed of what we're doing inside but the person who says lord jesus my life is an open book whatever i got you already know anyways it's foolish for me to pretend just come on in and I couldn't clean me up anyway. You clean me up. I surrender it all to you. If you'll do that, 
you'll overcome. You'll overcome. But listen, it'll cost you. It's going to cost you. Don't kid yourself. Buy of me. Who's going to count the cost? And who's going to pay the price? Let's pray together.